Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our conversation about D.C. statehood with Professor Gerard Magliacca from the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. Coming up, we pick up right where we left off with our discussion about our country's traditional way for creating new states. And then we apply that to the process and how it would work with the Federal District of Washington, D.C. We're also going to talk about the legal and policy considerations for creating that 51st state. If you haven't heard part one, we recommend that you listen to that first. It's the episode immediately before this one. Either way you go, we hope you enjoy. We now return to our conversation. Most of our states have been added since our Declaration of Independence, and so we do have a tradition of adding a lot of new territories that eventually become part of our union. But what was surprising to me in my research was that this process hasn't really been formalized to the degree that I thought it would be. And so there is precedent. And so I want to talk about that before we address kind of the next steps for a push for D.C. statehood here, what that process would look like. So I guess, traditionally speaking, what's our normal when it comes to trying to add new states? So a territory would apply to Congress to be admitted as a state. And usually that was when they had enough people or were kind of organized enough to really function as a state. And then Congress would pass a law that would admit them as a state. So it's a normal law to admit a new state that has to go through Congress and be signed by the president. The only thing that's special about it is you can't repeal it, right? Once you you make something into a state, you can't unmake it and say, well, we're not going to have California anymore by just repealing the law that made California a state. But otherwise, it's a normal law, which means it can be blocked just like a normal law. It doesn't pass both houses or the president vetoes it. That's happened in the past. But that's the standard process that we've used up until 1959 when the last two states, Alaska and Hawaii, were admitted. Now, D.C. is a little bit different, you know, so it was constitutionally created uh, and it was uh, taken from the land masses of Virginia and Maryland. And, and since then, Virginia has taken its land back. I think it was 1846, kind of a preamble to the Civil War. They decided to take their land back and they did. But uh, when it comes to uh, D.C., it would essentially be creating a state within a state. And so I know there's some constitutional restrictions there. So how does that process different given it was specifically created on purpose without congressional representation? And then also that restriction that you can't create a state within another state's body. Right. So that's where it starts to get difficult. The constitution contemplates that there is going to be some federal district somewhere within what we call Washington, D.C. Now, that could be very small, right? It could literally be just Pennsylvania Avenue and all of the major government buildings on Pennsylvania Avenue. And the rest could either be a new state or you could let the people who live in the city vote in, say, Maryland or Virginia as if they lived in Maryland or Virginia. But the difficulty is if you have this little enclave in the middle that you're still calling the national capital, the 23rd Amendment to the Constitution says that that thing gets three votes in the Electoral College when we vote for president and vice president. So what do you do then with those three votes? I mean, someone sort of jokingly said, well, the only person who might actually live in that little area would be the president. And the first family, you know, because they live in the White House. So then does that mean whoever they vote for 
you know, they win the election for those three votes in the little tiny city. No, that doesn't seem right. So then there have been different ideas about, well, what, what do you do about that problem? Because I think the 23rd Amendment of the Constitution sort of assumed that there would always be a Washington, D.C. like the one that we have and didn't think about the fact that we might want to make D.C. into a state. Well, you also mentioned in our pregame that there's going to be some issue about what to do with the federal circuit court. And so Washington, D.C., again, not a state, but it has its own federal circuit court. Other states do not. So how do you reconcile that to keep everything fair state to state? Well, that's a problem. So our tradition has been that no one state should get its own federal circuit court. So even California, our biggest state, is there are other states within the federal circuit court that covers California. Now, you could reorganize the circuit courts and simply take D.C. and put it into, get rid of the D.C. circuit court and put uh, the neighboring circuits into, or one of the neighboring circuits into D.C. That would leave the problem of what do you do with the judges that are currently in the D.C. circuit court? Uh, where, where would they go? But that kind of thing could be managed. Now, of course, the problem is the, the, the D.C. circuit is a very specialized court that usually deals only with challenges to governmental action. So to just throw them into other circuits might not work out so well in terms of the expertise they've assembled over the years. And then you're kind of distributing them into other places with other kinds of cases. So that's a bit of a problem. Although, again, if you leave this tiny enclave in the middle of Washington, D.C. as the new, smaller Washington, D.C., I guess the D.C. Circuit Courthouse, which could be included within that little enclave, and you'd still have the same D.C. Circuit. Well, I realize that, you know, it's not just about voting in Congress and electing uh, representation for those that live in uh, the District of Columbia. They're also concerned about some other issues as well. So what, what were some of the other policy considerations for those that are, I guess, for adding D.C. as the 51st state? Well, the obvious one is no uh, taxation without representation, right? And people who live in Washington, D.C. do pay federal taxes, and they don't have a vote over the people who decide how the money is to be spent and what the taxes are supposed to be. So that's a fundamental principle that is being violated for the people who live there. Uh, A second thought is that some people say, well, look, the Senate itself is kind of malapportioned in that small states get kind of a, or maybe we would say rural states get sort of overrepresented in the Senate as against urban states or urban centers. And Washington, D.C. being an urban center, if it were a state of its own, that would sort of address that imbalance a little bit, though not very much. Uh, So that's another thought. And then A third thought would be to say, well, since they can vote for president and vice president, why shouldn't they be able to vote for members of Congress? That it just doesn't make sense to say that they're eligible to vote for some federal offices, but not others. And that that's an inconsistency that should be ironed out. If Congress is successful at pushing this forward and creating this 51st state out of the District of Columbia, what does the process look like? I mean, what next steps are there left? Well, basically, a bill can be introduced to do that. There was a bill last year to do it that passed the House, but didn't pass the Senate. This year, one would expect something similar might happen. Of course, you can filibuster a law to admitting a state. And so to pass the Senate, you would probably need to get 60 votes. And that seems very unlikely in this next Congress. Uh, But it's basically you can 
do it like an ordinary law and move it through. Uh, the only thing that would pose, uh, I guess, a constitutional problem would be if you were to just create a state out of the whole of Washington, D.C. and leave no little enclave in the middle, because then some people might say that's unconstitutional because the Constitution sort of presumes that there will be some national enclave somewhere and that you have to retain something. But the current proposals to make D.C. a state don't do that. They just they say, yes, there will be still a national capital in the middle of D.C. It's just the rest of it where the people actually live that will get to vote for members of Congress and be a state. All right. My last question for you is semi-loaded and I can't take credit for it. So it came out of this uh, this great article. I really liked it. It was uh, uh, pretty short, uh, really well written. And uh, regardless of whether you're for D.C. statehood or not, I think this is a great piece that talks about the policy of having the D.C. as this separate independent thing, but it also provided an alternative. And so I'm going to go ahead and decide this. I'm going to put this in our show notes. Uh, the name of the article is The Case Against D.C. Statehood. And I'm going to mispronounce his name, but it was by an author, uh, Akhil Raja C. Car, and he wrote this piece for the Princeton Tory. And so, again, a really good piece, regardless of which side of the issue you stand. I think it kind of paints the issues you know, very succinctly. But uh, my last question for you, Professor, that loaded question is why not simply just take all the residential areas that don't necessarily have to be a federal property and then have them cede back to Maryland? And so everybody that's living there in an apartment or whatever type of dwelling you have, automatically, whatever that is, goes back to Maryland and then everything else remains with D.C. Now you take care of your representation, you take care of some of those city problems and all of that. So why not just do that? Well, I think that would be fine if the people there voted for it. That is, presumably, they would have to have a referendum to say, do you want to live in Maryland now? Because presumably, if they wanted to live in Maryland, they would have moved to Maryland, right? Or at least some people. So if they want to do that, and if Maryland is willing to have them, I think that's a perfectly fine solution. The trouble is that Maryland may not want them, first of all, for whatever reason. And secondly, the people living there may not want to live in Maryland. Maybe they like having D.C. because of whatever separate kind of identity D.C. has or different government policies that are pursued in D.C. as against Maryland. So it's fine. It's a bit like saying, you know, well, wh why don't you give uh, Greenland to the United States? And the answer is, well, first, do the people who live there want to want to be part of the United States or not? So you do have to get that kind of consent before you're going to make a change like that. But that's a that's a perfectly reasonable solution if people are interested in it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Professor, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Lawrence. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Without you, there's no show, and that's no fun. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. And also, I got some mega hat tips to make here. So I've got uh, one of the services uh, that I read quite frequently. I've been meaning to mention them uh, in past episodes. Uh, it's the National Constitution's Interactive Constitution. If you're interested in how our Constitution works, but the legal ease kind of bogs you down, this is a great resource there. It's plainly, it's plainly written so everybody can understand it, but really thoughtful, insightful analysis of our Constitution and how it applies. And also, I want to thank uh, Julia Manchester from The Hill. She wrote an article called Senate Democrats Reintroduced the D.C. Statehood Bill. And of course, Akhil Rajasekar, his The Case Against D.C. Statehood, written for the Princeton Tory. And lastly, but never least, I got to thank my team. Otherwise, I might uh, face a mutiny myself. I want to thank our uh, producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTA crew for keeping it groovy. This has been Legal Talk Today. 
I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.